Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. On today's show, we're going to explore composers' favorite dishes and favorite foods, which then made us think about, of course, some drink, which makes us think about food and drink, which makes us think about the rules and myths about food and wine pairing. Whoa, I cannot wait, by the way, for today. If you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. There are a few tiers you can choose from. Makes it really easy to decide what level best works for you, and you'll get patron-only content and, in some cases, merchandise. So do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. On that same Patreon page, there's also a link to our merchandise if you want to sport the merch. We love that. Some hoodies and tees. And, of course, thanks to those existing patrons, we couldn't do this without you. What up, Emily Reese? What up, Jill Mott? How's it going today? It's going good. How about you? Looking at these composers and the foods they liked made me not feel bad for the times that I've had like seven steaks in one sitting. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Makes you realize that it really was a little bit of a shit show back in the day before there was nutrition information and the like, you know. True that. Yeah. And I, you, a lot of times it was like, the more calories you ingested, the richer you were. Right. Kind of thing, like the better life you were living. Yeah. Which, you yeah. Know, whatever. Weird. Um, happy solstice. Happy solstice. Even this is, yeah. Even though this is obviously will be aired a little later. Happy solstice. Yeah. Happy solstice. It is nice to know that after today, we're on our way up in terms of daylight minutes per day. Summer of rum is only <laughs> 200,000 blinks away. Yeah. <laughs> It's but, coming. but it's on its way. Yeah. It's nice. It does feel nice. Someone sought us out because of our rum episode. Really? Speaking of summer of rum. Tell yes. me more. They just sought us out. They like were looking to find out more information on rum. And you know, you can find a lot of things online. And they came yeah. across our podcast and like listened to it. And now they're um like they love it. That's amazing. When you said you wanted to talk about we because we on and off, you know, we'll like course talk about composers and like minutiae about them right which yeah. makes their life i think it brings their music to life when mm-hmm. you know more about just their personal life or whatever and you were saying like yeah we wonder about their wine like what wine do people like they like certain things and we talk about food and then you were like i want to do an episode that speaks to like the the various dishes that composers like and i was like cool what am i gonna talk about <laughs> that happens often but i I was like, well, why don't we use this opportunity to talk about food and wine and how they pair together and how they don't? We'll bust some myths about food and wine pairing. I know a big one, but I'm not going to say it. What? The cheese one. Oh, God. It's so (laughs) annoying. Oh, let's have some cheese and wine. They suck together. (laughs) In most cases. Yeah, there's like, I mean, what we love about it is like, we love that whole romantic notion of like bread and cheese and meat to like charcuterie yeah. and wine. Yeah. When in reality, that just doesn't work. And I'll, yeah, I'll tell you why. Remind yeah. me to tell people why, because I'm so sick of that combo. Although <laughs> I love it. I like, I eat it. Yeah. But I eat it more like it's a nice, they all are beautiful on their own. Yeah. And and so it's just a nice way to like graze and like watch a show or graze and read a book. And you're like having these things. But if you actually are fixating on, the wine with the cheese with the things. It's like pooey. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, I was, um, I guess, not too surprised to find a lot of information about composers and food because, you know, composers used to write letters all the time back in the day. So there's references from very famous composers about the foods they ate and didn't eat. I was going to ask you how you found, like, how, what is the evidence? And I guess that's, that says it, the letters that they wrote. Yep. Letters they wrote. That's really it. You know, I mean, in some cases, uh, one, uh, sister of a composer left a recipe behind. So there are just things like that, 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 uh, kind of were found and stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Well, what is the recipe gross? I think one of them a, sounds disgusting. I find a lot of stuff that is from back 
in like, we'll just say, I'll just throw a date out there, like the 1700s, yeah. like recipes for desserts and stuff like that. I used to participate in this U of M food lab thing and we would, University of Minnesota food lab, and we'd talk about like how just we'd look at ancient recipes, old recipes and recreate them. We'd do classes on them and stuff. And like, there wasn't a lot of like recipes, how we have recipes where things are like weighed out or measured or, oh. um, or like cups, like, like, sure. you know, they would a dash of this or temperatures of ovens. They didn't say like, set your oven to 375. Sure. <laughs> They'd just be like in a warm oven. Yeah. And you're like, well, it's a warm oven. Yeah. Well, it was either warm or hot. <laughs> or, or lukewarm or something. It was either um, warm or So there was hot. just a lot of technique that wasn't discussed. You just assumed it came with this assumption. Sure. The people that would have that book would know Incredible. what a lot of the, yeah. you know, so that's kind of a cool thing. Just thinking about recipes and things yeah. that have come down from the times. Mm -hmm. With wine and food, it's kind of a moving target. The amount of times that we try to have a food and wine pairing, like people come into a restaurant that I work at and they say, I'm going to have this, what should I drink with it? I'm just making a best guess because the chef, let's just say he because or she, yeah, they, whatever, could be like a smoker. They could have, you know, been on a binge or a binge yeah. drinking the night before and they now they're over-salting everything or, Lord, you know, what? Yeah. who knows what. Not to like say chefs are binge drinkers. But yeah. <laughs> I'm um, sure some of them are. But like- you know, there's no, there's so many factors when you think of the chemistry of a dish that if you come across this food and wine pairing and you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I, from a recipe you've made. Yeah. And so now you're going to recreate it for your friends. It's probably a good 50-50 that it's not going to work out because you might undersalt at this time or you might, instead of olive oil, you might choose to use, oh, I ran out of olive oil, so I'll use a, the little bit I have left and a little touch of vegetable oil or yeah. Lord knows what. Yeah. You run out of brandy to deglaze your pan, so now you're going to use something else. And it's gonna that's going to change the amount of sugar that's in your glaze, you know, in your in your sauce. Yeah. So there's just so many different ways that you can that the food isn't going to be the same. Yeah. So therefore, even if you buy the same wine, the same vintage, yeah. you know, order the same dish. Yeah, someone it else is may probably cooking it in back, you yeah. know. Yeah. So crazy. But but I will talk about some hints to try yeah. to at least get you close. Anyway, okay. so well, what did you think of the list I sent? Well, I thought the list you sent was great. I of course was like, oh, what's Beethoven's favorite food? Oh, what's Rossini's favorite food? And then wondered why the hell did she pick that? Why did she pick that? Why did she pick that, <laughs> she pick that composition? So I'm, I'll be yeah. curious as to the link, the you know the the three part link uh, when we get yeah. in, get into that. Yeah. Well, where should we start? Do you want to hear some music first? Yeah. Which one were you most curious about? All of them equally, <laughs> actually. And you're catching Fair a Libra enough. on the solstice. Yeah, you're right. And the conjunct Jupiter-Saturn. Yes. This one yeah. right now that's happening hasn't happened since the 1630s. Wow. So shit's getting real. Conjunct Jupiter-Saturn in Aquarius, I think, but let's not go there. Yeah. This isn't astrology. We'll leave that to Chani Nichols. <laughs> So well, I'll just start with Rossini. Rossini is probably the most, one of the most famous composers and food. Um, we've talked about some of the others in the past, just made reference to the fact that, for instance, George Friedrich Handel ate a lot, loved to eat. Uh, really, I think you, I think you said Handel was rotund, or you said something. <laughs> you were like he liked to, sh to shove some food he or did. something he, like that. He likes to eat, and Rossini did too. Rossini, we talked about. Um, several months back on our creme de la creme episode. Mm -hmm. And we talked about him because he retired super early and was super rich from all the operas he wrote. And when he was 38 years old, he's like, I'm not going to write opera anymore. I'm retiring from that. I'm going to just sit on my fortune and eat the best food and have great parties with fun and a loving life. And that's what he did. Yes. And he still wrote music. He just didn't write operas. And um, he just loved food. And so chefs made recipes for him. And so there are tons of recipes that are like, da-da-da-da-da, alla Rossini, alla Rossini, alla Rossini. And the list is long. There's egg dishes, there's desserts, there's cocktails, there's actual meals. It's insane. I found one that would actually be quite easy to replicate and would probably be 
like really delicious for three bites. Which I, one would th- was that? I found it's called Tornado alla Rossini. The filet mignon one. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think filet mignon is obviously, during that time, filet mignon was probably a very prized piece of meat because it you yeah. know, was very lean. and But now, I mean, anybody that's a chef thinks that filet mignon is like the stupidest cut ever because <laughs> it has no flavor. It's like there's no fat. There's yeah. nothing other than which. This dish, you don't want any more fat because there's uh, so much. It's like a piece of buttered toast with the filet mignon on it with some pieces of foie gras on the top, truffles on the top. And then you take veal stock and you make a, I think you make a demi-glaze out of that, deglazing the pan with Madeira, putting more truffles in it and butter. So like that you can't have a ribeye and have this dish or you'll have a coronary tomorrow. That's Um, amazing. So yeah, just looking at it online, it does look pretty delicious. I mean, it looks like a fun dish to recreate and listen to some opera. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, his favorite meal, speaking of truffles, his apparently favorite meal was a whole turkey stuffed with them. (laughs) So literally like stuffed turkey with truffles. It's like a $4,000 dish. (laughs) I know. Do you happen to know if, if it was, if his preference was for white or black truffles. Do we I know don't, that? I don't okay. know. Interesting. We should find out though. Yeah. It's amazing the list of recipes named after him and uh, soups, pastas. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Well, so we should listen to some Let's Rossini. Let's listen to some Rossini. All right. So we're going to listen to one of his non opera works. So many of Rossini's opera overtures, the over, you know, the piece that starts off the whole opera. So many of those are so, so, so famous. There's just so many of them, and they're great. And so I could play you something familiar, but it's really fun to hear the unfamiliar, the less familiar from Rossini. So this is a really great duet he wrote for cello and bass, which isn't a common pairing, and it's bassy and wonderful. So let's listen to it. Yes. So pretty. So fun. It's so (laughs) fun. It's kind of like, I think it's perfect for this time of year, you know, this autumnal winter time of year. And it just reminds me of red wine and rich food. Yeah. Because of the deep bassy. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have like a furled brow and I don't mean to because my heart is warm. But I'm like... It's <laughs> <laughs> your bassoon face. Maybe it is, yeah. <laughs> it's such a great piece. It's three movements. And one of the things I love about Rossini's music is that mostly it's really happy. It's just joyful music. And it's in a major key. And like he wrote a set of string sonatas, like just pieces for a string orchestra all of them, major key, just seemed like he was... He sounds like a nice, like a like a fun fella. Yeah. Like, who doesn't want to hang out with Rossini? Right. I mean, was he a dick? Who wouldn't want to eat with Rossini? Well, yeah. I would, <laughs> I would die, because I tend to have, yeah. like, a half a bowl of cereal too much, and I'm, like, already feeling like shit. So, obviously, I get that from my dad. Thanks, Dad. About, you know, just, like... Whenever I go out for wine dinners, yeah. I get halfway through the wine dinner and I'm like, tap out, tap out, I gotta go. <laughs> he, oh. he probably would have made fun of me. But perhaps, yeah. But the food would have been great. The mm. four bites of it you'd be able to have. Mm. And the wine, I'm sure, for the time was the best that he could get, whatever that meant then. Yeah. But yeah. Rossini, there you go. So what would you pair with that? That's a great question. And I would probably do something, you know, thinking about the fact that wines were made a little bit different back in in that time because they didn't know, or around this time, they weren't really privy about yeasts and making really clean wines. So we can only guess what he was drinking, right? But I don't know, I'd probably do something really light and red or really deep and rosé. Or I would do a an orange wine with some lift, um, and the reason why is because it's hard to pair a rich wine 
with a rich dish. Mm. Like you want to match intensity. Let's start with some like rules of food and wine pairing according to the world of sommelier BS. Okay. And then we'll and then we can talk about like, you know, why those are great and why they're not and that'll yeah. help uh, us get to you know why I wanted to pair something lighter with such a heavy dish. So for our 10,000 taste buds that humans have, we used to think that, you know, bitter was in the back of the palate, sweet was at the front, and that's true to an extent, but there's actually each papillae or like, you know, section mm -hmm. of your taste buds has the ability to discern all flavors. They're just heightened in certain areas. Oh, interesting. Um, and so, yes, is your, are the majority of your sweet receptors probably more adept in the front? Of course, because that's where you, you right away, you're noticing sugar is a higher form of calorie, right? It's a caloric intake. Whereas bitter is like the last sign of defense, which is why it's in the back and not in the front, hmm. you know, most likely. And when we think of like the known rules, like white wine with white meat and fish, red wine with red meat and so forth, you know, I mean, that's kind of a nice guide, but there's so many rosés that go great with meat. Mm. And on the flip side, if you're going to have like a, a fish dish, there's so many great like stronger fortified wines that would go well with it or, you know, a, a medium bodied red wine that would go well with it. So the color thing, you can kind of throw that out the window because that's sort of like a really 1970s, 1980s way to, to drink wine. Um, <laughs> you know, the rules of wine are always, I think, or wine and food pairing, they're like meant to be broken because we do, you know, a lot of times when we think of steak frites, you know, steak and French fries, mm -hmm. you know, we think of like wine from France, like a bistro wine from France. And we have these like regional pairings like Spanish wine and tapas. Well, there are like 5,000 types of Spanish wine, right? Yeah. So why do they go together? And it usually we think of like this when a dish and a wine were kind of they grew up together. We just naturally think that they go together. And that can be true because of the chemistry of the food and wine a lot of times was in place of acidity. So now all these chefs are trying to make these super balanced dishes, like dishes that are fatty and salty, but they have acidity too. And then you kind of get this wine on the side and you're like, well, mm. the wine was meant to be the acid back a hundred years ago. And so now it's food and wine pairing is actually really difficult to get it right. And so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there and then we'll break it down even further after some more music. Amazing. And, you know, of course, we'll drink then, too. I'm just going to go down my list. I don't know how to choose who's next. What difference does it make who's it next? It doesn't matter. Why don't we do matter. Beethoven because you love Beethoven? Oh, well, okay. Well, in that case, let's go there. Beethoven's favorite food was macaroni and cheese, which I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> and it was a little, obviously, different than that. I think... From what I understand, he loved Parmesan and, you know, pasta apparently was pretty expensive mm -hmm. uh, back then. So he, he ate well when he ate his mac and cheese with Parmesan. Crazy. Cute. I know. That's so adorable. Super cute. He also loved fish. That's, that's the one we're going to replicate for scores and pours is that <laughs> one because it's so easy. Sounds <laughs> so good too. And just homey and delicious, mm -hmm. you know. And Beethoven liked his drink, too, so he was probably carbo-loading lots back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, he also, as I mentioned, really liked fish uh, more so than other meat, and so he would eat pollock a mm. lot, pollock and potatoes. So uh, one of the pieces I wanted to hear from Beethoven, this is a piece we've never talked about on Scores and Pours, and it's one of my favorite piano sonatas of his, Beethoven had three fairly distinct composition periods, middle, early, late. And this is right toward the end of his early period. So this is one of my favorite early Beethoven works, which is fun for me. That it's I just love that it's early Beethoven. But again, it's toward the tail end. So this was 1801. And this is his piano sonata number 15 in D major, his opus 28, nicknamed Pastoral. So here we go. Here's the first movement.
why is this one of your favorites? I love, um, because Beethoven, of course, well-known for writing some really tempestuous music. And um, some of that tempestuous and intense music is some of my favorite as well. But I love the tender side of Beethoven mm. because there's almost nothing more tender than it in the entire world of music. And it, it's, it's such an intimate, here I want to share something with you. Here I want to tell you this beautiful melody. Okay, let's listen to more. Yeah. sweet yeah i like that a lot when you mentioned pollock and potatoes say yeah do we know like were they was it poached pollock was it cooked in butter was it like sauteed like do we know i don't know and see that would matter a lot for the food and wine pairing pairing you would right so let's say it was you know we're not going to say that it's fried or anything like that so probably boiled or poached Mm -hmm. would maybe be the way okay if it was poached slash boiled, because that's like the same thing, right? Yeah. You're kind of, it's a lot more of a delicate flavor mm-hmm. um, than if you were to just even remotely do it on a, on a grill of sorts. You're adding an element of bitterness. From the char. From the char, right? yeah. yep. And you're adding uh, another level of flavor that is going to now kind of not not take away, hopefully complement, but it could take away from the Pollock if it was done too heavy, you know, too heavy handedly. So yeah, the cooking method is one of the most important parts to food and wine pairing, which, hey, nice setup. (laughs) When we break down food and wine pairing on a, you know, I'll just say kind of stupid, awesome sommelier level, you have to think of the components of a dish is the easiest way to do it. So the first, one of the most important things when you're thinking of a dish is like, how, how rich is this dish? Is it a lighter dish or is it a really heavy dish? And then I like to think about like, is it a really intense, are they really intense flavors? Like, um, or are they really delicate flavors? You know, cause you can have a really rich dish that's really delicate in flavor. Like yeah. they think of like salmon and depending on what you do, what your salmon is served with, it can be really delicate flavor. And then you've got all the elements that you have in food in general, acid. You have the textural component. Like, are you going to be, you having a piece of meat that you got to chew on for 20 minutes <laughs> and that's just going to dry out your mouth mm-hmm. and you're going to need a wine with tannin to kind of complement that? Or do you want, you know, is your is it a really salty dish? Is it really fatty, like, a, um, like fried? Another thing, does it have sweetness? Is it spicy? Spicy is a really hard one to pair with. with I mean, the last time I went out, I don't remember even who I was with, but I, I remember having Indian and it was so spicy and there was only red wine on the table for some reason. And I was like, what the hell? Who decided this was okay? Like just not okay. So the easiest way for food and wine pairing to begin is to take your dish that you're going to serve and all of your accompany, you know, your accompaniments and to break down what's the most important part of the dish. Cause you're not going to be able to strike a hundred percent balance with everything on the plate. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought of something I made recently. I made polenta and I made a, a pork butt that I had like seared in all these different Georgian herbs and spices. And I put some cumin in there and some coriander and some blue fenugreek and of course salt and pepper. And then I braised it in like, after I seared it, low and slow with this kind of wine, kind of vinegar thing that was sitting on my countertop that I was like, I'll use a little of that. And then I had a friend of mine makes fermented vegetables and I had a small amount of his juice, like just freaking reeks of farts. (laughs) And it's just like fermented goodness, dump that in there. And it just added the savory component. And after about four hours, the meat fell off the bone. The juice, the gravy was just delicious but then or the braising liquid, it's technically not gravy. And I served it with like, I had a little bit of his ferments. I had some cilantro and I had a side salad. 
Is it a rich dish? It is fairly rich. You know, you've got the pulled pork, you've got the fat that's that's all come out of the meat and is now in the braising liquid that you're going to serve on the top of polenta um, that had, you know, some milk in it, some cream. Is the salad important? Not really. The salad is kind of there because, let's face it, we're humans and have to have greens. Is the cilantro important? Not entirely because that's a, a garnish and it's a pretty flavor. The ferments, nothing's going to pair well with fermented foods, I'm sorry. And then you have like <laughs> all of these different herbs and, and spices that are in the rub that I used isn't going to matter really either because that's something that if you were to say, oh, Jill, well, it, it, it it's earthy, so I'm going to pair this earthy wine with it. No, that doesn't work that way because mm. once it doesn't matter what really a wine smells like because once everything gets on the palate, it's just all about chemistry mm-hmm. and a lot of those nuances that can happen, esters, you know, aromatically, a lot of times when you get that in your mouth, after you have fat and salt, and especially if you have garlic in there anywhere, a lot a lot of those, the aromatics are not going to play like they would play without food. They're going to be either more noticeable, less noticeable. So we're basically taking a structure, the structural part of food, and then we're thinking about the structural part of wine, which makes it all too complex and silly. And so I say, let's drink. Well, so what was the most important part of that dish then to you? I think that, thanks, I was getting there and then I got sidetracked. The The fact that the pork has texture, yeah. you know, you're going to be chewing on your pork. And that's kind of the main part of the dish, like the highlight of everything I was putting in my mouth. That was that's what I would That's the star of the show. Yep. And the kind of the braising liquid, like what did the braised liquid ended up tasting like. And that was sort of, that and the, maybe in the polenta, I would say, were the most important parts to fixate on to think of what I wanted to drink. And so we'll talk, I'll, we'll get into that dish in a second. But okay. first, let's drink this let's little do number. It. Yeah, what do we got here? This is from a producer in Burgundy. Okay. So, but we're in southern Burgundy called Celine and Laurent Tripos. So a pairing, a a husband-wife team, boyfriend-girlfriend, you know, whatever, whatever. And I won't tell you what it is. Really? Yeah, because I say Burgundy and everybody thinks they know what it is, which they're assuming right, but no, they wouldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) So. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. What do you think of the color? The color right away, you can tell it's not what everybody thinks it is. Which is what what do they think it is when it's in Burgundy and it's red? What grape? Pinot Noir. Yeah, nice. So this is not Pinot, and you can tell by the color. And it's because Pinot is usually brickier, right? Like kind of brickier, redder, and this is really purpley and ruby. Yeah, brick, not always, but sometimes. But yes, redder, a little bit more kind of ruby red as opposed to this is like a little bit of like a purpley ruby kind of color. Yeah, this is a deeper, warmer color than what I think a Pinot is a little harsher of a red, a little more aggressive. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect assessment. What about the nose? It smells like purple candy smells. Okay, you have only ever had really natty versions of this. Okay. And this is natural for all intents and purposes, except for the fact that it's very lightly filtered. This is a region known for extremely conventional wine, and so the fact that they're using native yeasts, they're not fining, they're, the filtration is... They're not what? Fining, like they're fining is getting out really small particles. Oh, okay. Filtering is getting out really big particles. Sure. And filtering is bad, I think, because you're getting rid of flavor. Yeah. But the filtration plates are so big that it's almost not like filtering it. Okay. Just getting out the big old chunks. Yep. And then there's hardly any sulfur added to this at all. So if you imagine this smelling nattier. Yeah. Is there any grape... Maybe one of your favorites. Is it Gamay? It is Gamay. Okay. Neat. So I'm showing Emily right now a map of Burgundy. And so we're far eastern France, central France. And in the Côte d'Or, which in, we're looking at a wine folly map right now, it's kind of, it's very purple, the area that the Côte d'Or that's known for Pinot Noir. You go a little bit further south and you're in the Chalonnaise, which is known for Pinot Noir and, and also Chardonnay, like the Côte d'Or. We get down to Macron, and Macron is huge white wine country, but when we're in the far bottom right corner of the Macron, there's an appellation called Macron Chardonnay Lou Macron. And that means, if it's red, it's Gamay. (laughs) 
Why? What's that gray region right south of the orange region? That is Beaujolais. Oh. So now we're getting close to Gamay country. Yeah. Gamay was in the 1390s by Philip the Bold. He said, let's uproot all this Gamay that was on the Cote d'Or, that was around the Chalonnais and stuff, because oh. and let's uproot Gamay and let's have Pinot Noir planted because Pinot Noir is, has better quality and Gamay is too high yielding. Yeah. And so that was kind of relegated to the southern part of Burgundy and okay. left in, in places like Beaujolais. Let's drink it. <laughs> Emily's like, geez, we've been smelling this for 20 minutes. <laughs> Whoa. Nah. So acidic, Jesus. Wow, really acidic. They're clay soils here, okay. but a lot of crunchy limestone. Limestone can yield wines that are quite high in acid if the okay. producer's doing things in a slightly more natural vein. Wow. It's really acidic. Yeah. Right? Yeah, this is cool. And it shows, I think this is really fun because it shows like a... Ga this is definitely not Gamay from Beaujolais. You know, we're not on sandy soils. We're not on granitic soils, which could be fluid or chunky, respectively, depending on how it's made. Here we're on, like, clay and limestone, which is, like, it's got a little weight in the mid-palate, but it's, like, that acid just, like, whips that into shape right away. I feel like, honestly, Mr. Beethoven, if you added some bacon to your frickin' mac and Parmesan cheese— and gave me this wine. Mm. I think that'd be amazing. Okay, well, so to, to speak to that, let's let's talk about the components of this wine. So, yeah, because I'll talk about Celine and Laurent Tripos in a second because their story is really cool. Neat. But when you put this in your mouth, we've said high acid, mm -hmm. medium to high acid. Mm -hmm. What about the tannin? Like, how much does it grip and dry out your gums? I would give this. On a scale of one to ten, probably like a five or a high high five six. So medium, and I yeah. agree. We're not mm -hmm. like in Cabernet country where no. it's like super tannic, but it's definitely there. Yep. And so now I'm thinking right away when we say medium or high acid, mm -hmm. this could handle a rich dish. Why? Because your rich, fatty dish wants acid exactly to refresh the story, right? To cut through, to make you want to keep eating and drinking. The tannin. You want something kind of with a little chew factor, like even something like pizza that you have pepperoni on there or bacon in the mac and cheese or something like that, or steak. This would be great for a ribeye because ribeye is rich. Ribeye is heavy. Yeah. And so do you want a heavy wine with a heavy, a heavy dish? And then to boot, a lot of heavy wines don't have a lot of acidity. It's really hard to have a 14% alcohol, meaning a full-bodied wine. Yeah that has high acid. Think of if that concept doesn't, if you don't know what I mean, think of a really ripe banana that's yeah. really refreshing or a really Weird. ripe any kind of fruit that's, it, you kind of either get ripeness or refreshment. You don't really, you hardly ever get them both. Well, yeah, and for me, I mean, I don't know how you like your bananas, but I love my bananas with still just slightly green. Yep. More acid, less sugar. And the longer they ripen, the more sugary, right? They just get really sweet and mushy. And that's why when when you put nut butter on something, you put peanut butter on a medium ripe or maybe a under little underripe banana. You don't put it on a gross, mushy banana because it's <laughs> now it's too much. Yeah. You know, it's too thick. Yeah. It doesn't have any... You know, the, the nut butter obviously isn't refreshing. Yeah. So you always want um, something with an elevated amount of acidity to go with something that is fattier. And the tannin is a nice play off of things that are chewy. But tannin also dries out your mouth. So even though this is medium tannin, think of putting cheese in your mouth. This is why the macaroni situation would worry me is because <laughs> depending on how much Parmesan he's using yeah, or his chefs were using – that's really salty. And so a lot yeah. of times that's when it would be great, even with the bacon, it would be great to opt for a white wine that okay. has really good acidity like this does because it'll clean that story up and keep it a really refreshing pairing. Yeah. It'll cut through the richness of the cheese. But it, you won't have this like you dry out, you, you know, that Parmesan dries out your mouth and makes you want to take a sip and then you take a sip of wine that does the same thing. Interesting. It's like yeah. a dehydrating times, uh -huh. you know, or dehydration squared. Yeah. And you never want that. Right. So where are we going now after our sip of wine? Um, we are going to Poland, sort of. Cool. France, really. But Poland, because we're going to talk about Frederick Chopin 
and Chopin was from Poland. You may or may not remember that when he was fairly young, he left for France and he never went back to Poland, but that didn't mean he didn't love Polish food still. He loved a Polish beef roulade, which is called, I think, Zrazi. Could be pronounced completely differently than that, but that's how it's spelled. Like your iPhone will correct it to crazy, just so you're aware. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's not. Hilarious. It's Zrazi. And Polish beef roulade. So from what I understand, a beef roulade is thin slices of beef, like a flank steak or something mm-hmm. that's just thinly sliced. And then there's a bunch of stuff that you roll into it. So you just roll it like a tube. And there's sometimes it's eggs, vegetables, both. Pickles. Yeah, there's Pickles, a lot of, weird. And it's really, I think the people that make it in various countries in Eastern Europe, it's like encouraged to be creative with your fillings. Fun. I've heard. So, I, I mean, know. to me, it sounded like that could be really delicious and fun, but I'm not a, I mean, thinly sliced beef like that is, needs help. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It needs a lot of friends to make it interesting. But I love that that was his favorite dish. I thought that was really cute. It's cute. Well, yeah. I mean, I wonder just what his favorite stuffing was. Exactly. Because like what the hell would, was in it? Because that could be either hats off to you or that's nasty, man. I don't want to be eating with you. <laughs> I want to be listening to your music. I don't want to be eating with you. (laughs) And it's fitting that uh, Chopin loved a Polish dish as uh, one of his favorite dishes. He also was a tremendously proud composer in that he wanted to share the traditions of Polish music through his compositions. One of the ways he did that was through writing uh, tons and tons of pieces called mazurkas. And a mazurka is a Polish dance in three. So three being like a waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three kind of thing. And he literally wrote dozens upon dozens of these. Mazurkas have a pretty specific rhythm. Um, so for like one, two, three, one, two, three, or just da 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 Zrazi. A little mazurka to go with your macon. Yes. have a little bit of like a broken heart about Poland like that oh, he wasn't yeah. there yeah because it seems time. like through the music and if that was his favorite dish you wonder if it was his favorite dish partially because he wasn't there yes know? I mean that's very possible this, there are two really beautiful stories about him and his love for Poland one being uh, that his father would write him letters in French and he would write back in Polish because mm-hmm. his father stayed in Poland and so his father was the one who would write in French, but Chopin would always write back in Polish, hmm. which is very sweet. And he also, when he died, his body is buried in France, but his heart is in Poland, which every time I tell that story, I could cry. I mean, it's just such a sweet and beautiful, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's say the Zrazi had just eggs and vegetables inside it and a thin steak. I mean, I suppose it would depend, of course, on how it's seasoned, but mm-hmm. are you thinking along those lines that would be kind of a similar thing where to counteract maybe the richness of the beef with eggs, you'd want something a little not as full-bodied and, I don't know. what. Per- perhaps, you know, it sounds like a dish that you would like you'd saute it and then maybe bake it if we're talking about modern times. Mm-hmm. And 
it would really depend on what that stuffing is like because it actually, even though the eggs and meat are technically considered like richer, fattier things, if it's a flank steak and it's thinly sliced, it's right. actually going to be leaner. So maybe something either medium bodied, both red, either red or white. Okay. And it would depend like if someone was going to do, let's say someone's going to nowadays put a little curry in there and it gets a little spicy, it gets a little heat, then I would maybe opt for a white because- Heat can be something that is acts like salt where it can be a little bit of a problem. If it's spicy and you really want to drink something and you drink a red wine that's got that dehydrating effect of the tannin, yeah. that could be a little cumbersome and just kind of seem like unnatural, like you want something to refresh your palate and then you have something that has that tannic effect. So I would maybe do like a medium-bodied red or white, which makes me think go right in the middle and do a, like a medium-bodied rosé. Oh, yeah, yeah, Libra. yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but the, but rosés, because they have the skin contact, usually, they do have the smallest amount of tannin, but it's like almost negligible. But just that little bit that helps with the chewiness of steak okay. or meat would be yeah. really, really nice. So one of the, this is really not apropos of the discussion we've just had, but one of the things that I am curious about when it comes to pairing wines is like a really oaky wine. What would a really oaky wine, because that's not my favorite thing, but mm -hmm. what might that pair, let's say an oaky red or an oaky white, what what would those be good with? Well, so an oaky white doesn't necessarily mean it's light or full-bodied, right? So yeah. you, that's going to depend, but I'll just use a oaky Chardonnay as yeah. an example that's medium-ish to full-bodied. I would probably do something like a roasted chicken, why? Because a roasted chicken isn't necessarily super rich, but you have chicken fat. You have the skin that makes it a little richer. You've usually, you know, put butter under the skin or you've put olive oil, you've rubbed in olive oil. So it's got some richness to it, but the tannin that the oak gives can really be a nice kind of foil or really pair well with the chewiness of chicken, you know, red or, or excuse yeah. me, light or dark meat. The fact that Sometimes you don't want, I'm going to just stray from that example for a second and use like oysters. Okay, Oysters are obviously very light and delicate and they're very complex. They can be. Would people get into oysters just like they get into wine? The last thing you want when you're going to have really beautiful oysters is like a super complex wine okay. because then your brain is going to be too in your palate and your glass and not you know, have one or the other be a focus is a lot of times how I like to play it with it. So if, if I had a roasted chicken, that's fairly simple. Like you've got maybe a little garlic, maybe a little lemon, maybe a little thyme, but it's not like you got 700 spices in there. You could have like an uh, oak Chardonnay that is like a really nice Grand Cru Chablis or a really uh, great Premier Cru Burgundy or something like that, where the fruit and the soil and the texture is very complex. And a, a nice, beautiful, but simply roasted chicken would allow for the complexity of that wine to shine. Whereas if you have like a really complex curry, say, that's got all these aromatics and all the stuff that you're gonna like enjoy smelling, the last thing you're gonna wanna do is go search for a wine that's like super complex and busy, right? Yeah. Have like a nice, easy drinking IPA. <laughs> or have a, you know have like a easy drinking white wine that is delicious but that isn't like competing you know you, yeah. you kind of want to find what do you want to focus on and of course in the end um, I love that one of the the winemaker for uh, Maison Noir this dude Andre I think his name is Houston Mac he's like just drink what you like in the end of course if you hate white wine and you only ever drink red wine and you want red wine with your oysters fine. Do that. Mm -hmm. Just know that it, you may not have this, you know, exalting experience like if you were to choose something a little more delicate. I don't know. All right. Do you want to know a little bit more about this producer? I really do. Let me, you need a little top off there. I do because this is delicious. I love how weird it is compared to the gamay I'm accustomed to. These guys, they've been making wine in this area since I think the late 80s and they we're selling their grapes to the co-op for, you know, obviously not a lot of money and poor results. Like the wine that they was made was obviously a collection of their fruit, everyone else's fruit. And so they decided in 2000 to go the opposite direction of most people in Burgundy. Their soil looked like 
awful, and they couldn't believe that their kids had to grow up with this kind of like atmosphere and, and winemaking and viticulture. So they decided to farm organically, farm biodynamically, have those practices get mirrored in the cellar. And now they're making some of the most cool, vivid wine in the Macon, which is known for mostly Chardonnay, mostly white wine. There are a few producers that make red, that they make Pinot Noir. They also, in this case, they make Gamay. And what's cool is this whole little region here, the Macon Chardonnay, Le Macon, there's four hectares of Gamay. That's all. So it's funny that this appellation yeah. for red wine pertains to four hectares, of which obviously they have a very small amount, Wow, um, which is pretty cool. This has about 10 days on the skins to give it this beautiful color, and then it's fermented in stainless steel, which kind of keeps that fruitiness and freshness alive. It's fermented also in some old oak, and then they transfer it all to old oak, and it rests there. It's called elevage, aging, for about six, six-ish months, give or take. Okay. I love that it smells like gamay. It smells like, you know, when we think of Beaujolais, you can kind of get there. Yeah. But it's got this attempt at refinement that I think you can find really refined Beaujolais, too, don't get me wrong. But this is like we're kind of getting up into the – now we're starting to talk about Burgundy you know, which is like half really annoying <laughs> and also just sort of fun for those of us that we enjoy Burgundy and you also to have that, those reference points because a lot of natty wine folk, I would say, especially up and coming, like kids that are drinking a lot of natty wine, don't have reference points for Burgundy and really, in really well-made Burgundy. And I don't mean well-made in like a natural or not natural. I mean, what we consider benchmarks for certain very important, expensive places. And so it's fun that when you taste this, it tastes like a, a fairly naturally made wine, but it also tastes like the refinement that you, when you grew up learning about that region, here you can taste it in a red Macon from, that's made out of Gamay. <laughs> it's just super fun. I love it. I do too. Is there anything that you, like what sticks out about this wine? Is there something that sticks out more than besides the acid? Oh, besides the acid? Yeah. Um, I think the acid, it almost has like a sour, grapey mm -hmm. taste to it, which I really like. And then the also that what stands out is the that concentrate finish. I mean, mm. it just lasts. I can just taste grapes on mm. the finish for yeah. several minutes after, Even which is great. Do you agree, though, that the finish is, is nice and light? You know, it's, oh, it's yeah. nice and light. It's mm -hmm. not like a... Um, you say concentrate, and I think some people may think like grape concentrate or yeah. grape must concentrate that can be thick and can be sweet and, yep. you know, but... The flavor, but not the heft yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. And that's interesting that you point that out because with wine, what distinguishes wine from water, right? And, and I mean, there are 5,000 things, but <laughs> people don't, they tend to, when you mention acidity, especially 10 years ago, now it's changed a little bit, but I think when you mention acid, people kind of get freaked out. They're like, ooh, I don't want... Mm -hmm. High acid wine, but why do you not? That's what distinguishes, you know, and your papillae notice that acid more than in wine. And obviously, water doesn't have that. And mm -hmm. so, that's one of the things that kind of sticks out the most for people that whiny, that sour quality, kind yeah. of in combination with, with acid. Mm -hmm. One thing that I wanted to note, just that's cool about this wine, is there are only when we say appellations, it can be obviously a place, but it can also be a place that's a style too. There are only three other appellations within all of Burgundy, not including Beaujolais, of course, that allow for Gamay. One is a sparkling called Cremant de Bourgogne. You can throw some Gamay in there. One is called Coteau Bourguignon, which is also like uh, Bourgogne Grand Ordinaire, which basically means a lot of shit that nobody could sell as Burgundy Rouge, so they dump it in there. <laughs> or uh, Bourgogne... Passe tout grain, which looks like passe tout grains is what it looks like. Okay. And passe tout grain is usually a blend of Pinot Noir and Gamay. So okay. that you can have Gamay in that. But this is one of the few places that you can taste Gamay in Burgundy, which is really cool. Wow. Do you have any other questions about food and wine pairing? It's kind of like complex. And I know we just did like a crash course when I used to teach sommelier classes that used to be like an mm -hmm. entire eight-hour session. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do you have any other questions or like – favorite foods that you want to take a stab at pairing some wine with or what? Well, I want to hear what you ended up pairing with your pork dish. Mm, 
Because we never came back to that. And that sounds like it must have been a delight. Well, we're going to definitely, I'll pass some your way, first of all, because you got to taste it with this wine. For scores and boards, for those of you that are patrons, you know you get patron-only content, which includes a recipe with a wine pairing and music pairings every mm-hmm. other Monday. And so we're definitely going to post this up. I had a Cabernet Pfeffer okay. from a producer called Sturm, guy, super cool dude, Ryan Sturm, out of uh, Western California. Well, Almost all the wine is made in Western California. So he's like uh, <laughs> close to Santa Cruz Mountains area. And Cabernet Pfeffer is this weird grape that hails from Bordeaux, but really is not grown there much anymore. And there's only like a handful of, like two producers in California that are making it huh. because usually people just dump their Cabernet Pfeffer into other things or they don't even know it's not Cabernet Sauvignon. And it just flirts with medium bodied, it's quite light. It has a lot of like very kind of irony, bloody kind of ferrous notes, but fennel seed too. Um, it reminded me like if Chianti was made in California, like it was hmm. kind of medium, wanting a little more acidity than medium and just blazed through that pork, but had really <laughs> fun aromatics and was sort of the opposite of the weight. So we had like a, you know, the, the dish was like, I'd say a, medium to full-bodied dish with like a light to medium-bodied wine, which is really nice. It was great. Nice. One item of a menu that can be a little bit cumbersome to pair, it's actually as easy as it gets with dessert, but it's one thing that I think most people go the wrong direction, honestly, is dessert. Because people will have a dessert and they'll be like, well, let's have a dessert wine with it. It's like, why do you want sweet with sweet? Like, do you want to put sugar on your cake? And so I think the easiest way to do that is to either have, if you have a dessert, have like a really beautiful spirit with it. Like think of a, I don't know, say something I love, carrot cake. Well, have a really beautiful Calvados, meaning the distillate that's very famous in the Calvados region, which they're very well known for cider. So it's distilled cider. And the strength and the acid, you know, cut the richness of your dessert But it's not like sugar on top of sugar. And a lot of times the aromatics can be really pleasant. So you have like these apple aromas that pair really well with, say, in this case, a spiced cake. If you love like flourless chocolate cake, have like a really beautiful Armagnac. Armagnac can be kind of fiery, kind of um, it's notorious for being, you know, pretty strong. But there's always these grape nuances, yet it really refreshes the palate with a rich, cake. And of course you're only having, you know, an ounce or two ounces. So that can be a really pretty way to end. And if you have a really special dessert wine, pair it with something that's not sweet, really sweet. So like nuts and some really dark chocolate or nuts and like that. This is where throw cheese in, have cheese be the way that you celebrate dessert. And yeah, of course you might have some crackers and some marmalade and some nuts as well, but cheese and dessert wine can go very well because, you know, the sweetness of your dessert wine can pair really well and be kind of the opposite reaction in your mouth to the saltiness of cheese. And they tend to not have a lot of tannin. um, So that can be, uh, you won't end up with that crash situation of like too much salt dehydrating, too much tannin dehydrating. So that's what I would do for the dessert course. Well, let's listen to one more composer. Yeah, please. I mentioned earlier that some of the recipes sounded gross, or one of them did at least. And this is this is the example. And I don't think it's his fault. I think it was kind of a product of the times, as we mentioned. But I don't think this is how beer soup is made. So Leos Janacek was a Czech composer in the late 1800s. He lived from 1854 to 1928. And he to- sent a letter to his fiancée one day and said, I just made the most delicious beer soup that reminded me of my mother's. He said he took, uh, he cooked some beer. Once the beer was cooking, he beat an egg till it was frothy mm-hmm. and took eight sugar cubes, put that in the beer. He had me until he said sugar cubes. <laughs> I know, oh, right? Frick, okay. <laughs> eight sugar cubes. And that's it. Cooked beer, a beaten egg, and eight sugar cubes. Do you know why I bet he put the sugar cubes in there? Because if the, if beer, you know, back in that time, 
I think lagers were, yeah, lagers were around. And so depending on what type of beer he was using, even if he's using an ale, there was some hops in that beer. And so when you cook beer, it just gets bitter. Okay. And so that sugar probably balances out that bitterness and huh. makes it like now you're, I don't want to say having a broth, but you're just not having like bitter, right? bitter malty water. Gross. And just how much beer? Because eight sugar cubes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like. I don't know. Maybe he was eating twenty a big ounces. Bowl. I know. I yeah, don't maybe know. or maybe two times that. Maybe forty ounces. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I know. I'm gonna make that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Eight sugar cubes, a bottle of beer, and beat the hell out of an egg and toss it in the cooked beer. Amazing. Janacek, despite his culinary preferences, was a, an amazing composer and is an absolute delight to listen to. We had an episode a um, couple weeks back on ethnomusicologists. Janacek was basically what the predecessor was to ethnomusicologists. Composers like Janacek would take folk songs, folk music from around their region, and were highly influenced by it and created a nationalistic sound as a result. And Janacek was someone who did that. So let's hear an example of that. This is Lachian Dances, um, which comes from uh, the Moravian Wallachia district, or not district, region, it's a huge region, which is in the farthest east side of the Czech Republic now. So this is uh, one of the dances from, uh, there are six in this piece of music from Janacek called Lachian Dances, uh, which he wrote in 1888. So here we go. Cool. Wine is made around there too, just FYI. Yum. This is the fifth of the six dances. Here's some oboe in there, kind of yeah. piercing through everything. Yep. That's the acid in our wine. <laughs> it does make me want to dance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, not in my typical, like, Janet Jackson dance hall dance. It makes me want to, like, actually dance. Yeah. Like, kick up your feet. Like, jig. And, yeah. Like, yes. ring around the rosy or maybe grab yeah, your no. partner. I don't know. Like the grab your partner and to yeah. and fro. Da, da, yeah, a little da, square da, da, dance. Da, da. Real, just folk dance, yeah? yeah? Makes you want folk dance. Yes, yes. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Good talk. So, since you may not know too much about Janacek, I'll, I'll share with you. Because, I mean, we talked about Chopin, Beethoven, yeah, Rossini, some super, like, com, like, A-list, right? classical music composers, which Janacek is very popular as well in the world of classical music, but not to the fringes of people who are like, oh, I like, like, you're not going to go up to some rando on the street who kind of likes classical music and they're not going to tell you their favorite composer is Janacek, right? But maybe a violinist would, or so, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So um, one of Janacek's most famous pieces is his Sinfonietta, and the opening movement is particularly popular. It's a big fanfare. And even though the piece itself has multiple movements and is for a full orchestra, this first movement only has brass and percussion. So I thought if, unless you have more to add, we could uh, go out on the coattails of uh, some Janacek. Let's go out on the coattails of some Janacek. But I want to say lastly on the food and wine pairing sector, break rules, have a good time. The rules are there as guides, but they, I think they are meant to be broken because I will fully confess after an hour and six minutes of recording that every time I've had an aha food and wine moment, about 10% of them have been planned. Huh. It's usually like a happenstance, oh my gosh, yeah. how are these things happening all at one time? And I'm pretty good at removing set and setting, like... Yeah. Oh, I'm with these special people or in this special place to to actually 
fully say that's hap- that's going on in my on my palate. So break some rules, have some fun, eat, drink, and be merry. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll also find a link to our merchandise there, which includes some awesome hoodies and cool t-shirts. We are on Instagram at scores and pours, and that's a great place to get a hold of us. If you want to send us a direct message, give us any feedback. We'd also love to be like rated in spots like iTunes and stuff would be amazing. Thank you. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by purchasing their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. 